seven, Stan Phillips. Happy Tuesday, Met fans. How you all doing? Well, who stayed up to watch the end of that Met game yesterday? I, for one, and I don't like to be a negative Nelly, thought we lost the game. And I'm saying to myself, well, hopefully we'll win at least one game in St. Louis before we come home for the weekend against the Phillies. But you know what? Last night proved that this is why baseball is such a magical, magical sport. You have to have... 27 outs before you are defeated. And the Mets pulled one out in the ninth inning that we will remember for a long, long time. Maybe we'll never forget it. But it was an incredible ninth inning rally. It's one of the greatest comebacks I've ever seen in Met history. Now, it was a slow first eight innings for the Mets. They had just six base runners in that span, and Pete Alonso had two of their first four hits as Miles Mikola shut them down for seven scoreless innings. He was going toe-to-toe with our madman Max Scherzer. And after Trevor May allowed two home runs on three hits and a walk in the bottom of the eighth after Max Scherzer's gem, the Mets looked dead in the water. But after Eduardo Escobar singled with one out and took second base on defensive interference, Indifference with two down, the rally started. Mark Conha reached on an infield single to third, but a rare Nolan Arenado error sent Escobar home. Who would thought that a elapse by Nolan Arenado would open the door? Jeff McNeil then doubled. Solid double, and with the lead run on second, Dominic Smith pinch hit for Thomas Nito. Smitty roped the ball down the first baseline. The four-time Gold Glove winner Goldschmidt made a diving stop. But here's the catch. The flip to Gallegos wasn't in time, and not only did Jankowski score, but McNeil, heads up base running, never stopped running, and his aggressive base running gave the Mets a 3-2 lead. The Cardinals then brought in lefty T.J. McFarland to face Brandon Nimmo, but on the first pitch, he went deep and gave the Mets a 5-2 lead. All five runs were unearned and scored with two outs, thanks to error by a nine-time Gold Glove third baseman, Nolan Arenado. What were the odds of something like that happening? Well, it happened. It just goes to show you got to play the game. Now, Scherzer was dominant from start to finish. He retired the first eight batters he faced, and then after allowing a walk and single consecutively, he again retired another eight in a row. In his seven scoreless innings and 101 pitches of art, he struck out 10 while walking just one and allowing just two hits, both of them to Paul Goldschmidt. With the gem bite max, and I think it was his best game of the year, he lowered his ERA to 1.80. Now after the rally, Edwin Diaz came in to finish the comeback and did so, striking out two batters en route to clinching the victory. Despite the win, Robbie Cano did go 0 for 4 and is now hitting 184 with a 225 on base percentage. 
With Smith's clutch at bat and Cano's continuing struggles, it's hard to imagine their respective roles remaining the same. I think Smitty is eventually going to replace uh, Robbie Cano. Uh, well, at least I think Smitty deserves that opportunity. Now, the Mets are now 13-5 and on the season, which is good for the second-best winning percentage in the majors. And things are looking good in Metland. Now, there's more good news coming out of the Met camp. Uh, Jacob Grum's MRI results are in, and they are showing considerable healing in the shoulder. Now, you got to remember that Grum has been out since April 1st due to the shoulder injury, and he had a follow-up RBI, M RBI, MRI on his right shoulder on Monday. And like I said, the news was pretty, pretty good. The Mets say that both his MRI and CAT scan showed considerable healing of his stress reaction. And the ace has been cleared to begin loading and strengthening of the shoulder. He will also be re-imaged in approximately three weeks, the team announced. Monday's MRI followed the CAT scan that was performed on his shoulder this past Friday. And DeGrom also recently had a bone scan that confirmed the original diagnosis of a stress reaction scapula injury. DeGrom has been out since April 1 and has been in the midst of a roughly four-week shutdown to allow the injury time to heal. On March 31st, with spring training nearing a close, DeGrom reported shoulder tightness. He was placed on the 10-day IL the next day after the initial MRI revealed the injury. Now, when DeGrom was cleared to throw, well, I should say when he is declared fit to throw, the expectation is that he will begin the light, light, light throwing before ramping up. Uh, the doctors are basically saying that the bone healing is a six-week process, so you really don't want DeGrom to be going full speed before then. If he did, he would be putting himself in necessarily high risk of re-injury. Now, it looks like the diagnosis is that once he is healthy, he will return to his normal velocity and control. And that is of the utmost importance right now. Uh, basically, what the doctors are saying is that when caught early, uh, the player strictly adheres to rest and rehab protocol. And then there is extended period of follow, following uh, a ramp back up. There is accompanying risk of overdoing it and having a setback. However, as long as the ground progresses slowly, you should expect a full recovery of his prior pitching performance, like I said, to both respect, respectable control and velocity. So it looks like we may be getting the old Jake back, and that's what we hope for. Just get him back for the second half and let him rip it. And I don't think uh, with all this rest and recommendation and not ramping it up. We probably won't see Jake till midseason. So uh, he's not exactly a young person, but he has shown the ability to bounce back from, from injury before. And uh, I think we kind of expect him to come back. Uh, and he should be fine, I think. Uh, he was such a big key to the Mets' early success as the Mets won. Uh, most of his starts, although he was a bad luck pitcher, uh, just couldn't catch a break offensively. But it's good to have him back. And I think sooner or later, luck always turns and he'll just have one of those dominant one-loss seasons that he truly deserves. Now, another injured rotation member, Taiwan Walker, 
He's expected to return to rotation this weekend against the Phillies. At the moment, the Mets' rotation consists of Scherzer, Bassett, Carrasco, Peterson, and McGill. Now, as we all know, this year does seem like a different year. Is it the Buck Showalter effect? I don't know. But it is good and refreshing to see the Mets playing the way they are. Uh, they've been so resilient all year. I mean, really, really showing guts, never quitting, and just going full steam ahead. What character they showed. They had just seven base runners to 8.2 innings on Monday's game against the Cards in St. Louis. Then it took one error. Now, let's admit it. Nolan Naranato could be one of the best defensive third basemen of all time. And his error opened the door. That's kind of a sign that things are going right for you. Now, the Mets had four consecutive hits while down to their final out, including the two-out infield single that Dominic Smith beat out to give the Mets the, the lead while Jeff McNeil just never stopped running. And the two-run homer by Nimmo gave the Mets some extra insurance. It really was great base running by Smitty and McNeil. Uh, they just anticipated what was happening, and they took care of it. Now, the Mets probably did experience a little frustration because Max Scherzer pitched a game of his life, and he was matched zero for zero with uh, Nicholas. So, But if it wasn't for Scherzer's 10-strikeout ball, uh, the Mets never would have been able to rally. So Max was a key figure in the game. And you just watch the Mets now, never giving up, never, ever giving up. Because it seems like they have it until that last pitch every night. They have that ability to win the ball game. And even when they don't win, it feels like they're making it tough on their opponents when they do beat them. So this definitely is a different Met team, definitely. And you could see again like last night, everyone had a hand in the rally. And you don't know who's going to be the offensive hero, but we have so many candidates every night uh, that even when they have to scratch across runs, there's somebody, it seems like, that's willing and able to do it. And Nimmo put the icing on the cake with a two-home run rally shot that uh, gave the Mets the 5-2 lead and gave them a really good cushion, cushion, I should say. And that was a great ninth inning for the Mets. They're really playing good team baseball. Everyone's got a hand in it. Uh, they come out of the gates pretty well most nights, but when they don't, they never give up. Now, let's be honest, April's April, and things can always get hairy in the next few months. Injuries happen. Other teams get hot. We get cold, and that's when the Mets will be tested. But it's good to come and face the good teams. We have done well against the Giants, a big win against the Cardinals last night, and like I said, St. Louis isn't a team you sneeze at. They're a good team. And uh, to go in there and compete well against them is really, really good. So the Mets have a good baseball group and a good team approach when it comes to just how they go about their everyday business. So it looks like a mature group. That's a great hitting team. They have a good approach. And uh, it showed again last night. There's 144 games to go in the season. But everybody, I think the players included, sense a difference in this team.
from last year. Uh, the wins have been huge so far this year. And these are wins I don't know if the Mets really even had a chance of acquiring last year. Uh, things were kind of the other way around for the Mets, where teams came back on the Mets. And let's be honest, that is kind of deflating. So it's good to see the Mets be able to do that to other teams. Now we talked about Jacob deGrom and uh, when we're looking forward to him coming back. But we haven't mentioned Taiwan Walker yet. Uh, he had a successful Monday simulation game, and now he's ready for the next steps. And if recovery goes well, Walker should be set to return to the Mets rotation this weekend. And that is good news. Walker went four innings tossing 64 pitches and used his entire repertoire as he tested his aching right shoulder yesterday. He has been dealing with bursitis in the shoulder, and that forced him to miss some time. He threw everything, and his velocity was pretty good. Uh, it was around 92 to 94 miles per hour. So what's the next step for Taiwan Walker? Well, if he recovers fine from this sim game, he should be good to go to, in the rotation this weekend against the Phillies. Uh, in his absence, David Peterson has been stepping up and pitching well. Petey owns a .64 ERA through 14 innings so far this year. So like Tyler McGill-Peterson has stepped up, and that's really been a major reason why the Mets have done so well so far. Now, as you recall, the Mets may not have gotten Max Scherzer if Steve Matz actually uh, signed with the Mets. The Mets were going after Matz first, but uh, he declined the offer and uh, escaped the Mets' clutches last season, leaving the Mets' owner to vent his frustration on social media. Steve Cohen, who really doesn't say too much, accused Matz's agent of reneging on a contract agreement called the behavior unprofessional. Instead of returning to the Mets after spending 2021 with the Blue Jays, the 30-year-old lefty signed with the Cardinals for $44 million over four years. Matz, who will face his former team Wednesday in the series finale at Bush Stadium, indicated Monday that he holds no ill will toward Cohen or the organization. Matt's even said he's a passionate owner, so you have to respect that. I don't love drama. That's not my personality. So I didn't love Cohen's outburst, but I was really excited to come to this organization. So that kind of overshadowed it for me. Before reaching an agreement to Cornells, Matt said he never committed to the Mets. Uh, he didn't, he said. He wanted to get a contract done. It really made an interesting situation with the lockout almost forming a deadline. It was almost like a last-minute thing. But there were no deals done or anything. Now, did Matt's envision a, sh a return to the Mets? Uh, he said he knew there was a good chance, but he wasn't really sure. When the Cardinals, Cardinals came and offered him what they did, he was really excited, so that ultimately was the final one. It wasn't like he made a commitment or anything, so things were up in the air, and I kind of believe Steve Matz. But the good thing is the Mets ultimately rebuilt the rotation by signing Scherzer to that three-year contract, with $130 million in trading with Oakland for Chris Bassett. So it's like the old saying, uh, good things always happen. Don't panic and just let things happen as they are. Now, the notion that Mets, Mats is spurning and the Mets enraged Cohen to spend big on Scherzer and other free agents is laughable to Mats. He says he can think of 10 million other reasons why but the fan base is probably excited that they spent that much money. Everybody respects Cohen for what he is doing. Mats belonged to a group of young pitchers with the Mets that included Jacob DeGrom, Harvey's, Wheeler, and Syndergaard. Those were good times back in the mid-10s. Uh, the only remaining Met from that group is DeGrom, and in recent days, Mats said 
It hit him that DeGrom is the last remaining member of the Mets' 2015 World Series team. Matt spent six seasons with the Mets before he was traded to Toronto in 2021 in a deal for Sean Reed Foley, Yenzi Diaz, and Josh Winkowski. Last season, Matt's pitched to a 3.82 ERA and 29 starts for the Blue Jays, helping bring value to uh, his, I guess, his portfolio after his uh, final Mets season, which in 2020, he pitched with 9.68 ERA and nine appearances. Matt just couldn't get anybody out, and he was demoted even to the bullpen for a stretch. Matt said the trade to Toronto was difficult for him because he didn't know anybody. He said when he knew it was with the Mets organization, he was a grounds crew, everybody in spring training, and especially going to Toronto last year, we really didn't play them that much, so I didn't know anybody. He said he knew Joe Panic a little bit, but that was it. Just walking in the clubhouse like that, you feel like you've got to earn guys' respect a little bit. Now, Matt's is 2-1 with a 5.27 ERA and three starts this season and said it's a different vibe with the Cardinals. He says he loves it. It's a real fun team. He likes playing with Wainwright Molina and Pujols, and that's pretty special. And Nolan Arenado, it's a fun team. So we wish Steven well. Uh, we just don't want him to do too well tomorrow. Now, as we do every day, it's time to celebrate some Met transactions and birthdays on this date. This date in 1947, fleet-footed, a good old 5 tool player, Amos Otis, was born in 1947. Mike Scott, who came back to haunt us back in 86, was born this date in 1955. Lou Thornton was born this date in 1963. Uh, Ricky Trillich was born in 1969, and Scott Strickland was born in 1976. And in this date, unfortunately, the Mets lost Danny Napoleon in 2003. What are some of the transactions that happened on this date? Well, the Mets purchased Harry Cheedy from the Cleveland Indians on April 25, 1962. Yes, Harry was the player to be named later for himself. Uh, the Mets traded Bobby Smith to the Cubs for Sammy Taylor on this date in 62. And on this date in 67, they purchased Jack Lamabi from the Chicago White Sox. On this date in 1977, they traded Rick Auerbach to the Rangers for Lenny Randall, Played very, very well for the Mets. Uh, also, uh, Mike Matthews was released uh, in 2005. And Michael Tucker was signed as a free agent in 2006. The Phillies signed Ryan Cordell of the Mets on this date on April 26, 2001. Okay, now just a friendly reminder that if you're listening to this podcast, please do subscribe. You will be alerted every time a new podcast is up when you do on your favorite carrier. And if you're not a member of the baseball group New York Mets Baseball Way of Life, by all means, please do check us out on Facebook. It's the greatest group of people on there. We talk serious Met baseball, good conversation. Everyone gets along. And you'll be glad you do. Be your stopping place every day for Met information and conversation. Now, if you ever reach out to me, I'm at philstan41 at gmail.com. 
Always love to hear from you. So whatever's on your mind regarding the Mets, shoot me a line. Now, as we always do, it's time for our Met Trivia and Jeopardy questions of the day. Today's Met Trivia question. With his start at third base on May 2nd, 1955, this man became the 103rd baseman in Met history. Who is he? Today's Jeopardy clues. On March 31st, 1998, he hit a full count two-out pinch hit single to right with the bases loaded in the bottom of fourth inning, 14th inning to help the Mets beat their division rival. The Phillies won nothing at Shea Stadium. And he wore number 30 as a Met. Lock in your answers. We'll be back at the end of the podcast to tell you how you did. Now, as we always do, we want to talk about some of the players who are celebrating birthdays today. How about we start with Amos Otis. Now, Amos was originally drafted by the Boston Red Sox in 1965 as a shortstop. He was a good all-around athlete, and he spent time in the outfield third base and first base while playing in the minors. In November 1966, the Mets drafted him, and he jumped all the way to AAA ball in 67. He saw some time with the Mets late in 67, but he spent 68 at AAA again before making the Major League roster in 69. He was part of a trade package along with Ed Cranepool and Bob Heiss when the Mets attempted to acquire the Braves' Joe Torre, who went to the St. Louis Cardinals for Orlando Cepeda instead. There's something I bet a lot of Mets fans didn't know. And Otis immediately clashed with Mets general manager Gil Hodges who tried to make him a third baseman. And after four games, Otis was sent back to the minors for a month. At the end of the season, Royals general manager Cedric Tallis sent third baseman Joe Foy to the Mets in exchange for the young Otis. Foy was bogged down by drug problems and was out of baseball by 71. Meanwhile, the Royals immediately moved Otis to center field, and he became the starter for most of the 70s. He made the American League All-Star team in each of his first four years with the team and won three gold gloves. His speed worked well with the Royals team philosophy of speed and defense. On September 7, 71, he became the first player since 1927 to steal five bases in one game. He led the American League with 52 stolen bases that year. And Otis scored the final run ever at Kansas City's Municipal Stadium in the fifth inning on October 4, 1972. Now, he had as many as 26 homers in a season, knocked in 90 or more runs three times, twice led the AL in doubles, and once in stolen bases with 52. He compiled a career high of, career total, I should say, of 341 steals while being caught 93 times. He was a clutch performer, and he consistently produced for the Royals as the team became a perennial contender. On September 21st, 20, September 12th, 1977, I should say, Otis helped eight youths who were stranded after the Royals game had been rained out when flooding prevented the boys' parents from picking it up. It was my kids, Otis said. I would have wanted to do something, someone to do something for them too. Now, Otis hit 478 with three homers and seven runs batted in in the 1980 World Series. He came up big time. He set a record for putouts in a game by an outfielder in Game 3, a contest in which he also homered. He's one of two players, along with Alex Bregman in 2017, to drive in a run in each of his first five World Series games. Now, unfortunately, later his offense began to decline in part due to a hand injury. By the late 70s and early 80s, his fielding skills had also diminished, 
and he lost his center field job to Willie Wilson near the end of his long run with the Royals. In 1983, he left the team before the season ended when he told he was not in the Royals' future plans. He spent most of 84 internationally with the Pirates. It was a quiet end to a successful career. In the 17-season career, Otis posted a 277 batting average with 193 homers, 100,007 RBIs, and 1,998 games, while stealing 341 bases. Defensively, he recorded a 991 fielding percentage and 126 assists, primarily as a center fielder. He worked for the Padres and Rockies as a hitting instructor, and he has retired to Las Vegas. Otis still attends Royals reunions, and he dons a uniform to play in alumni games. In the early 90s, Otis admitted that he used a cork bat during part of his major league career. Now let's talk a little bit about Mike Scott. He's an American right-handed pitcher. Uh, he pitched for the Mets and the Houston Astros. He won the National League Cy Young Award in 86. And he's part of a select group of pitchers that thrown a no-hitter and struck out 300 batters in the same season. Now... Early in his career, he was selected by the Mets in the second round of the 76 MLB draft. He made his major league debut with the Mets in 79. By the end of the 82 season, Scott had compiled a 14-27 record. The Mets traded him to the Astros for Danny Heap on December 11, 1982. In 83, Scott had a mostly successful first season with the Astros, making 24 starts and going 10-6 uh, with a 3.72 ERA. He struggled in 84, going 5-11 with a 4.68 ERA for the Astros. The turning point in Scott's career came in 85 when he became a student of pitching coach Roger Craig. Craig taught Scott the split-finger fastball, a pitch he made famous while coaching the pitchers of the 84 Tigers. Scott became an 18-game winner in 85 and was rewarded with a three-year deal with the Astros valued at $2 million. However, there were rumors that Scott's dominating performance was the result a ball scuffing. Scott had been accused of using sandpaper by the Cubs in 85. In August of 86, Roger Craig, then the manager of the Giants, complained that Scott's real secret was that he scuffed the baseball. It's great, said Scott of the charges. Anytime you have hitters coming to the plate thinking you're doing something, it takes their minds off the pitch. Nine times out of ten, the umpire will look back at the ball and throw it right back to me. Now, 86 was the big year for Mike Scott. That was the year he enjoyed his most successful season, and he posted an 18-10 record with a 2.22 ERA, striking out a league-leading 306 batters. On September 25th of that season, he threw one uh, no-hitter, 2 nothing no-hitter, against the Giants at the Astrodome that clinched the National League West Division for the Astros. This game was voted as one of the top five games played in the Astrodome after the Astros moved to Enron Field following the 99 season. Now, that Astro rotation was really strong and included Bob Nepper, Nolan Ryan, and Jim Deshays. Scott's outstanding form continued into the postseason when Houston faced the division-leading Mets in the 86 NLCS. The Astros lost the series four games to two, but both Astros' victories were courtesy of Scott's overwhelming starting pitching performances in games one and four. The Mets aggressively voiced their suspicions that Scott was doctoring the baseball and to the media during this series. So dominating was Scott in those two games, 0.50 ERA, 19 strikeouts, 
eight hits, and only one walk in 18 innings. Yet the Mets considered Game 6 something of a must-win. A loss would have meant facing the apparently unbeatable Mike Scott in Game 7 in the Astrodome. The Mets won Game 6 in 16 innings, averting another Scott start to win the league pennant. In recognition of his regular season performance, Scott was awarded the 86th National League Cy Young Award winner. He was the Cy Young Award winner as the league's best pitcher. He was also voted the NL 1986 NLCS MVP. The first time in NLCS history a member of the losing team was so honored. A year later, San Francisco Giants' Jeffrey Leonard would become the second consecutive MVP of the losing team. Now, as Scott's career after 86 continued, he was National League starter in the All-Star Game in 87 through two scoreless innings. He was also the opening day starter for the Astros. He went 16-13 and with a 3.23 ERA, eight complete games and three shutouts in 247.2 innings while finishing second in the NL with 233 strikeouts. In 88, Scott once more was named the Astros' opening day starter. On June 12th, he was denied a second no-hitter when the Atlanta Braves' Ken Obrick fell single to right with two outs in the ninth inning. He had a 14-8 record with a 2.92 ERA, eight complete games and five shutouts in 218.2 innings while having 190 strikeouts. In 89, Scott won 20 games and finished second in the National League Cy Young Award, voting behind Mark Davis of the Padres. He was, for the third consecutive time, the opening day starter for the Astros. He had a 3.10 ERA, nine complete games, and 172 strikeouts in 229 innings. Although injuries began to plague him shortly thereafter, in 1990, was, it really was his last full season. He had a 9-13 record with a 3.81 ERA average in 32 games. Uh, he completed four, had two shutouts and 121 strikeouts in 205.2 innings. He played in just two games in 91 season, losing both games while lasting a total of seven innings, giving up 10 earned runs and having three strikeouts. Scott retired after the 91 season. As of the 2021 season, he's fourth all-time on the Astros in wins and fifth in strikeouts and six in games started. On October 3rd, 1992, he and his former teammate, Jose Cruz, had their numbers retired by the Astros. Now let's talk a little about Lou Thorin. He's a former Major League outfielder and pinch runner, and he played parts of five seasons in the Major Leagues between 1985 in 1990. He was with the Mets in 1989 and 1990. All told, in the two years combined, 89 and 90, he played in 16 games with the Mets and uh, had four hits and 13 at-bats. So not much going on as far as Lou was concerned. His claim to fame is he had two different Met numbers, number four and number one. Now let's talk about Ricky Trilicic. He ended up his career, which began in 1992 in the majors with the Mets in 96 and in 97. Uh, all told, he pitched in 14 games for the Mets. Uh, didn't start any all in relief. Uh, finished six games. Uh, not much of a distinguished career. All told in the major leagues, he was 5-8 and eight with a 5.23 ERA. And uh, he was a righty, big guy, six foot three, two hundred pounds, uh, batted righty. But again, not much to his Met career. 
but have met nonetheless, and we celebrate his accomplishments. Now let's talk about Scott Strickland. He was a relief pitcher for the Expos from 1999 through 2012, and then the Expos traded him to the Mets in a seven-player transaction. With the Mets, Strickland pitched in 68 games in 2002, finishing 6-9 with a 3.59 ERA. After appearing in only 19 games in 2003, he had to go undergo Tommy John surgery and was sidelined for most of the next two years. Uh, he did not return to the major leagues on September 5th, 2005, and he returned with the Astros and pitched only four, seasons, four innings that season. But he was a Met. Uh, like I said, he bounced around a bit. He had that unfortunate injury. And it is Scott's birthday day. So happy birthday, Scott. Now let's talk about what happened in 1977. The Rangers traded Lenny Randall on the suspension for the spring training altercation in which he fractured manager Frank Casey's cheekbone to the Mets for a player to be named later, which was infielder Rick Auerbach and Cash. Joe Torre, the New York Mets skipper, replaced Joe Frazier, shifted the 28-year-old second baseman to third base. And here's an interesting stat. Carlos Delgado really had some great numbers. Uh, he hit good pitchers well. Against Roger Clemens, he had 875 OPS. Andy Pettit, 994 OPS. Pedro Martinez, 892 OPS. John Smoltz, 1.026 OPS. Kurt Schilling, 1.15 OPS and Mariano Rivera, 0.863 OPS. Basically, what this sums up to be is Carlos Delgado could hit anybody. And you know who also was a good hitter? Keith Hernandez. On this date in 1988, Keith Hernandez hit two homers and drove in seven runs to reach the 1,000 RBI milestone. The Met first baseman's offensive output, which includes an eighth-inning grand slam off Charlie Paleo, contributes to the Mets' 13-4 route of the Braves, at Atlanta Fulton County Stadium. On this date in 2006, at the age of 47, Julio Franco became the second oldest player to steal a bag when he swiped second base in the eighth inning of the Mets' 9-7 victory of the Giants at AT&T Park. In 1909, Artie, Artie Latham, who played two games at second base for the Giants, purloined a sack as a 49-year-old. On this date in 2012, using a homegrown starting lineup for the first time, since 71, the Mets beat the Marlins when Heath Bell walked four batters in ninth inning, including Justin Turner's 13-pitch at-bat that knots the score before he gives up a game-winning two-out single to rookie Kirk Neuenheis. 41 years ago, Gil Hodges used the lineup of all Met, former Met farmhands that included Ed Cranepool, Bud Harrelson, Tim Foley, Ted Martinez, Mike Jorgensen, Duffy Dyer, John Milner, and Jerry Kuzman. Well, on this date in 2012, the Met lineup was Kirk Neuenheis, Ruben Tejada, Daniel Murphy, David Wright, Lucas Duda, Ike Davis, Josh Tolley, Jordani Valdespin, and John Neese. So those are some of the good things we're talking about in the group uh, New York Mets baseball way of life. So like I said, you got to join. Mike Freed gave us the latest update on uh, DeGrom. Uh, Tony James gave us a good post of recapping last night's game, and so did Mike Freed. A bad coach! And uh, like I said, every day we got good stuff on there.
And Mike Freed touched upon the fact about uh, Robinson Cano health. People are complaining about Cano being in the lineup. Check out the group to find out what Mike's saying about the whole situation. Did you know that the Mets committed only four errors in 17 games? That is their fewest ever through the first 17 games of any season. And the Mets are 10-1 when scoring first this season. That is the best mark in the majors. And Max Scherzer has not suffered a loss in any of his last 22 starts. That is tied for the 15th longest streak of starts without a loss in modern history. Roger Clemens holds the all-time mark. Let's see if he can get it. And that will wrap up today's podcast. But first, you know what we need to do. We need to give you the answers to the Mets Trivia and Jeopardy question of the day. So who's ready? I think all of you are because you've been waiting uh, with much anticipation for this. I can see it. Now, here is the trivia question. With his start at third base on May 2nd, 1985, this man became the 103rd baseman in Met history. Who is he? Well, the correct answer is Elgardo Alfonso. Congrats to Kareem Haywood on being the first to submit the correct answer. Today's Jeopardy. Two clues. March 31st, 1988, he hit a full count, two-out pinch hit single to right with the bases low in the bottom of the 14th inning. to help the Mets beat their division rival, Philadelphia Phillies, 1-0 at Chase Stadium. And he wore number 30 as a Met. The correct response to the final Jeopardy is who is Albert Castillo. Congrats to John Tierney on being the first to submit the correct response. Well, that's going to wrap it up for today. We want to thank you again for tuning in. Don't forget, tonight is Game 2 of the series against the Cardinals. It'll be Chris Bass on the mound looking to bounce back from his last start. Uh, Chris has a 2 and one record with a 3. What's 3.60? 3, I'm sorry, 3.00 ERA. And Jordan Hicks, who could throw the ball as hard as anybody, will be pitching for the Cardinals. He's 1-1 one one with a 1.29 ERA. Should be a fun one. We'll be here tomorrow to talk all about it. So check back tomorrow. Enjoy the day. It looks like a nice day out there in the New York area. And remember, let's go Mets.